Welcome, comrades and friends, to Workers' World Party's weekly broadcast, where hundreds of revolutionaries from across the world gather to strategize, to analyze, and to build the struggle for a socialist future for a workers' world. So what better night to do just that than tonight, when we commemorate the 100th anniversary of the founding of the Communist Party of China? Tonight, we have an exciting panel of active members of Workers' World Party that I'm excited to introduce. But first, I would just like to say why it is that we're meeting here today and why it is that we defend and celebrate the Communist Party of China. For 5,000 years, China was one of the world's most advanced societies in culture, art, and technology. It, it came under attack in the 18th and 19th centuries from powers whose rapid capitalist development gave them a, a temporary advantage in military and industrial power. This advantage led to several hundred years of colonial looting of China and much of East Asia and South Asia. In fact, that period of, of 100 years between 1840 and the final defeat of uh, colonial interference is referred to in China as the century of humiliation. Most people brought up in the United States know very little, unfortunately, about the past intervention by the U.S. and other imperialist countries into China. They're unaware that in the 19th century, armed units from the U.S., Britain, France, Germany, and Japan imposed their will on Chinese cities. The U.S. Navy had fleets patrolling Chinese rivers. And this looting, this colonial looting, led to staggering poverty and famines and social chaos and the enforced underdevelopment of China. When students mobilized against Chinese rulers who were compliant and who collaborated with the imperialists, they were repressed. A nationalist movement grew in China. And until 1921, despite the courage of its young participants, these activists were unable to coalesce into a movement that could mobilize the masses of people. And that, remember, even at the time, constituted one quarter of all human beings on the planet. What changed in 1921 was the founding of the Communist Party of China. In the following century, the CPC led a great revolutionary upheaval of hundreds of millions of workers and peasants. And by providing leadership, by providing education, by providing the organizing skills and mass resistance, the CPC led the Chinese Revolution to victory. And that's how 100 years after the century of humiliation, we are now talking about 100 years of revolution. So without further ado, let me now introduce our fantastic panelists tonight, my comrades. Tonight, we're going to hear from Makasi Motema, who is a member of the New York City branch of Workers' World Party and a contributing editor to our newspaper. Welcome, Makasi. We're also going to hear from Sarah Flounders, who is a longtime member of Workers' World Party and co-editor of the new anthology book, Capitalism on a Ventilator, the Impact of COVID-19 in China and the U.S., and of course, a contributor to Workers' World Newspaper as well. And finally, we have Josh Hanks, a member of the Portland, Oregon branch of Workers' World and a regular contributor to Workers' World Newspaper. Comrades, I'm so excited for tonight's discussion. So let's get right into it, shall we? Tonight, we're going to be talking about 
the really tremendous achievements of People's China and specifically the role of the Communist Party of China in accomplishing these things. But before we get there, I do want to talk a little bit more about what I referred to in the introduction, which is how did the people of China win the revolution in the first place? And what was the role of the Communist Party in achieving that victory? Makasi, do you want to start us off? Yeah, because um, it's, a, it's a remarkable story. I mean, as we've said, the party existed for a very long time. They didn't win the revolution until 1949. One of the major aspects that made their revolution so successful was the incredible organizing work that they were able to do. Mao has a kind of a famous quote, no investigation, no right to speak. And it's an interesting quote because when you dig down into what he was talking about, specifically what he was talking about with in terms of investigation was getting to know people on a personal level. So having like small meetings with people and asking them about the, the economic conditions that they're suffering, who, you know, who landlords were, were the principal oppressors in, in rural China, finding out who the, the worst landlords were. I mean, when I say that they developed a very close relationship with the, the peasantry in China, I'm saying like they knew in a village who had like a, an abusive mother-in-law, right? Like they knew who the local bullies were. They knew who the worst landlords were. They knew the people who had the or reputation for honesty. And they, they used all that information to form people into organizations and what eventually became base areas where they were in charge of huge swaths of an already very large country. And they were able to defend that territory with their military forces. And that's kind of the other really important factor that it's not talked about a lot here in the West, but not just Mao, but the entire general staff of the Red Army at that time were all incredibly, incredibly skilled military commanders. Mao wrote the book on guerrilla warfare. The lessons are so important that even the U.S. military studies it today. So this is an organization that built the deepest bonds among the masses and gained their support. And then even though they they were operating under horrible conditions with, with virtually no real high quality equipment, executed a, a superb military campaign for decades. You know, we talk about like, well, the Chinese Communist Party, that it's huge now, that it's successful now. The fact that it even exists now is an incredible achievement, that it existed past, let's say, 1935. They were up against all odds and they they have a long, long history of success. That's a great way to start us off, comrade. The, the, the most important baseline skill, which is organizing, deep organizing, like we talk about. Sarah, did you want to jump in as well? Yeah, this is uh, certainly an exciting topic for all of us engaged in building a revolutionary party here, because clearly China, it's part of a process, an unfinished process an ongoing process and has been through many different stages and challenges and, and really seeing that and looking at it as a contribution to Marxism, even though we face very, very different problems here. Now in China, they faced a real problem of a, a very small working class to maybe 3% of the population, an overwhelmingly massive peasantry. But 
as Chairman Mao Zedong pointed out, a peasantry that had an enormous revolutionary history that time and again had risen up and literally overthrown various dynasties in China. And this was following the Taiping uprising in, in like 1865 that went on for years. And then the Boxer Rebellion of 1900 that literally was sort of the death knell of the Qing dynasty. So these peasant revolutions, but their problem always, while they could pull down a dynasty, while they could overthrow the local landlords, while they could extract a certain immediate justice, they could not change society. And this is the contribution, what Marxism represented, the tool of Marxism, of scientific socialism, was a way of giving working class leadership to these revolutionary peasants who were being destroyed by the imperial saluting. The Boxer Rebellion was overwhelmingly against the imperialist looting of China and took a toll on hundreds of missionaries and merchants and, and, and so on at, at the time. And it took the combined armies of all the imperialists together. They said, oh, we need a united front against the Chinese masses. So there was this application of Marxism. And then what's even so important is the understanding that it takes a Leninist party. It takes organization. It takes discipline. It takes centralization and the ability to really push that forward. Now, they started tiny. You know, the first meeting 100 years ago was 12 people meeting. They represented, I think, 55 members. Today, they're the largest political party in the world, 92 million members. But that same concept that they exist to change society, to build a new society, and that it takes discipline and cohesion in the face of imperialism, in the face of the old society. That is what has, there have been different currents, different approaches in how to accomplish this, and, and also different stages in China, which are rich in history and reading and understanding. But through it all, the Chinese Communist Party, as an organization, as an institution, and as a coordinating force has remained in a very determined way. So that's why we're saluting 100 years of the Chinese Communist Party, because it's, it's rich in lessons of Marxism and the importance of a Marxist-Leninist party if we're going to take on the absolute right here in the center of imperialism. It's even more complicated, but they faced a very big problem, and they were using a very creative and determined approach. So this salute tonight is a part of an ongoing Workers World Party's view from the beginning that there are many people who wrote off the Chinese revolution. It's another peasant uprising. And it was Workers World Party's view, Sam Marcy, who said, but this is under working class leadership. They have a communist party that has been in combat with imperialism and with their own feudal landlord class. So let's defend it all out. That was a view from the beginning, and that has remained our view. Let's defend it. This is a real changer in history. Thanks so much, Sarah. In hearing both you comrades mention this, it, it certainly makes it more important to me and clearer to me what it is that a Leninist party 
contributes to a revolutionary struggle. That fighting approach is what's necessary. You know, after, you know, we saw a history of 2000 years of peasant uprisings, overthrowing the local landlords, and also the combined threat of foreign imperialists. So you don't, you're not only fighting your own bourgeoisie, but you're fighting these foreign occupiers. And it, and it really is the formation of the, the Chinese Communist Party that was able to take that struggle to the next level. Josh, did you want to jump in here as well? Do you have any points on that? Yeah. So I think to understand China today, you really have to understand the Communist Party of China and its foundation, how it came about. And I think there's a huge deficit in the West among the political class and the ruling class of that understanding of the Communist Party of China. And I was reading some article the other day from some bourgeois Western media source, and it was saying basically that China is not as strong as we think it is. China is actually really weak, and it's just pretending to be strong. And one of its points was that soldiers in the People's Liberation Army spend like several hours a day studying Marxism-Leninism and Mao Zedong thought. And in the eyes of this like Western journalist, that's a bad thing because they're just wasting it. And, you know, they've already written Marxism-Leninism off as, as a failed ideology. So in their mind, China's soldiers are just sitting around all day learning this failed ideology. Meanwhile, when you look at the U.S. armed forces, there's a huge fascist problem there. And it's as, as Thomas Sankara said, you know, I'm paraphrasing that a soldier that doesn't have ideological training is, is basically just like a hired thug. And that's what soldiers are in the U.S. They don't have they don't have Marxism, Leninism as an ideological training. And so uh, fascism and white supremacy is very common among the U.S. armed forces. And I think there are some people in the U.S., some generals who understand Marxism and maybe really do understand the threat of China. They've learned some history of the Communist Party of China, and that's why they're so intimidated by it. And for us as revolutionaries, it's also equally important to understand the foundation of the CPC, how it began. Like Sarah said, it was founded with just, you know, like what, a dozen members on a boat in 1921. And since then, it's grown to be 95 million members. I mean, that's massive. That's one of the largest parties in the world. I think it's the largest ruling party in the world. So I think if we want to continue our struggle here and advance it, it, it behooves us to understand the Communist Party of China and its foundation and its rise. And how, for example, like I think it's like 90, 90 or 95% of youth in China uphold Marxism and say that, yeah, Marxism is true. It, it accurately explains the world. And the approval rating of the Communist Party of China is the highest in the world. It's, it's like over 90%. I'm sure with post-COVID, it, it will increase. So a lot of Westerners will write that off as, oh, they're brainwashed or whatever, this, that, and the other. But they're really hurting themselves by not understanding why the CPC enjoys such broad and genuine support, especially among the youth. That is critical to understanding China's success of why this party is successful and why so many people, Chinese people, support it and have joined the party. Why 95 million Chinese people have joined the party, which is a very difficult, arduous task. It's not just like you sign up online and you're in or whatever. Like it's it's multiple years. It's very difficult and only like really dedicated, passionate servants of the people are able to become party members. I'd like to just briefly add something about what Josh said, that that anecdote about the soldiers reading Marxist texts 
that goes all the way back to the beginning of the revolution. Because for the Chinese Communist Party, there is no separation between the military struggle and the political struggle. So going all the way back to the days of the revolution, you would have a commissar in every unit, essentially down to maybe the company level. So we're talking about like 100 soldiers or something like that. All that stuff is blurry. But the point is, is that you had a member of the Communist Party embedded with the troops. And it was their responsibility to make sure to look after the troops' well-being, to listen to their complaints about superior officers, to teach them how to read, to teach them the fundamental tenets of Marxism, even to help them organize social clubs for recreation. And then in addition to all that, the soldiers themselves had to participate with planting and harvesting in the fields. And those two elements, what it shows is you have this cyclical factor where the party is serving the people and the people are then developing confidence in the party and assisting the party and allowing it to do something that a small party couldn't do without that support. You have this virtuous cycle. And that's why it's critical that they had that political education happening there. And that's why even now, when China's not militarily engaged with anyone, they're not invading anyone, they're not doing anything, it's still important to have that political basis. That's a great point, Mikasa. Yeah. And, you know, we, for, especially for workers' societies, you know, societies where the workers are now in charge of the state, once this is achieved and the socialist experiment is going on for generations, it's a constant process of reaffirming and further development of revolutionary thought. So when jo- when Josh mentioned that they you know they really brought up not only the question of how one aspect of how this education continues but they mentioned a couple other topics that we're going to hit on tonight in particular that you know later on we're going to be talking about that that question of like oh the chinese people are brainwashed which is such a deeply racist idea and I and I hope we get into that um in our future discussions as well but like Josh said, we have to understand the history in order to understand where people's China is now. And this is not just a, a historical question for us. This isn't an abstract question. And we're not celebrating the centenary of the CPC just because we like the colors of the flag. You know, we're doing it because we have a lot that we can learn from their successes. So let's get into it. What are some of those successes that we're talking about here? And what role did the Communist Party of China play in these historic achievements. Josh, do you want to start us off here? Sure, Ted, thank you. So I think the the role of the Communist Party of China is indispensable because if you look at peer countries in the world like India or Indonesia, for example, they haven't achieved the same level of development that China has. And I think the difference is the Communist Party of China and the, the leadership of that. And the successes that China has achieved over the past 100 years or since the founding of the PRC we could have multiple books written about that. That could go on and on and on. But I think the key ones uh, in the social sphere, over 800 million people were lifted out of poverty since 1981. China has totally eliminated extreme poverty as of last year, despite the pandemic happening. They still met that goal of eliminating extreme poverty. And they're not stopping there. Now they're tackling what's called relative poverty between urban areas and rural, rural areas. So now they're trying to equalize that, equalize development and not just get people out of extreme poverty, but to create what they call a moderately prosperous socialist society. And they're well on their way to that goal. 
you know, these achievements have been happening for a long time. Life expectancy under Mao doubled. That fact alone runs counter to a lot of what we hear about the early period of the PRC, that it was, you know, terrible and everything, but life expectancy actually actually doubled under Mao. Also during that period, they developed their first cars and airplanes. In 2016, it was estimated that China opened a new university every week. Every single week, they're opening a new university. China produces the most college graduates in the world, a title which was held for decades by the U.S. China also produces more graduates than all the European Union countries combined. College debt is virtually non-existent in China. So not only are they opening a university every week and producing the world's most graduates, these people are graduating with virtually debt-free. If we focus specifically on the Tibet Autonomous Province, the illiteracy rate among young people dropped from 95% in 1959 to about half a percent in 2018. The population of Tibet grew from 1.23 million in 1959 to about 3.5 million today. And the life expectancy of the Tibetan ethnic group increased from 35 and a half years before 1959 to 68.2 years today, almost 70 years today. I think one of the biggest data points you can look at is the infant mortality rate in Tibet. Before 1959, 430 deaths per thousand births. was That was the infant mortality rate. Today, it's 11.59 per thousand. So that is a tremendous drop in infant mortality. And then if you look at science and technology in China, like I said, it, China produced its first cars and airplanes in the 50s, which is amazing. The cars and airplanes are very complex and hard to produce. In 1991, China was ninth in the world in spending on research and development. Now it's second, and it's expected to be number one this year. And basic research and development into basic sciences is kind of like the foundation for an economy based on like science and technology. So that's like a key element of China transitioning to a, a higher economy, and it's investing heavily in, in research and development. It recently launched a new space station, which has an advanced docking system. Uh, it, can, it docked with the space station in six and a half hours, whereas SpaceX's Dragon capsule in April took over 23 hours to dock. So people always laud SpaceX and private space exploration as like the, you know, the new frontier in space. But actually, China's state-owned space companies are superior in a lot of ways, and its space station is superior in a lot of ways. Its space panels on the space station are significantly smaller than those on the International Space Station, but it produces the same amount of electricity. So it's just more efficient. Its Long March rockets have the highest success rate in the world. Since 2018, it's launched the most rockets into space every single year. Its moon missions, Chang'e 4 and Chang'e 5, were both groundbreaking. Chang'e 4 was the first one to land on the far side of the moon. It sprouted a plant on the moon. That was the first time a plant was ever sprouted on an extraterrestrial body. It's planning missions to Jupiter as well as crewed missions to Mars and the moon. It has already achieved Mars missions. It's Tianwen-1 mission recently sent an orbiter, a lander, and a rover to Mars, and it was the first country to achieve all three on its first attempt. And that's a very difficult thing to achieve all three at once, and it was able to do it. Its high-speed rail system is the longest in the world. It's nearly 24,000 miles long. That's about equal to the Earth's circumference, all in China, just high-speed rails. It produces the most renewable energy in the world. It produces the most solar panels in the world. It's a leader in nuclear power. It's building more nuclear power plants in the world than any other country. 
is developing fourth generation reactors such as pebble bed reactors, which are a lot safer and have a lot more advantages to help it meet its goal of carbon neutrality by 2060. It's also creating a closed loop fuel cycle where it won't depend on mining uranium. It can reprocess its spent fuel into new fuel and just have this fuel cycle that doesn't require mining or, or new inputs. So I could go on and on and on about China's achievements and why this has happened and why you can look at its peer countries around the world and see that they haven't achieved the same results. And the, the key ingredient, I think, is the Communist Party of China and its leadership. And just a, a real quick plug for Workers' World newspaper. Josh has been tireless in writing, particularly the the technological developments that China has been uh, achieving. So definitely go to workers.org and check out the articles that, that Josh has been putting out on, on just this subject. Makasi, Sarah, please, what, what, let's hear from about more accomplishments. Well, I mean, briefly, whenever you're talking to someone about socialism or communism, inevitably they'll say, well, under China, there was a famine. There was a famine and it was the last famine. That's the part that they don't mention. China, like many countries, suffered famines for thousands of years on a very, very regular basis. Every leader in, in, in China's long history, this is a major concern. The CPC was the first leadership body to put an end to famines. And this is not something that, well, it's the 20th century now famines don't exist. Because in neighboring India, another large country right on the border, famines continued. And what did the UK do to alleviate these famines? What did the US do to alleviate these famines? They did nothing. When famines happen in other parts of the world, the United States takes grain and they dump it in the ocean, you know, so that they won't take a loss on the price of grain. China put an end to that and saved millions of lives in the process. So we never really think about the horrible death toll that exists in capitalist countries. And when you look at some of the things that have happened to people in India, it's extremely heartbreaking because they could have the same level of prosperity. They could also eliminate extreme poverty the way China is, but their country is controlled by capitalism. And so they're just not allowed to save people's lives. Thanks, Makasi. Sarah, please yeah, jump in. Yeah, I want to pick up on that because it's monumental to do away with poverty, to do away with famine, to do away with the insecurity of not knowing if you'll be able to eat for millions of people. This is really the, the struggle. But the way in which China did it was a reorganization that went down to the village level, to the family level, because unless the whole population was mobilized to understand the problem and to really be part of the solution, be part of digging entirely new irrigation and be one with storing grain in a good year so you'd have it. So the, the landlord wasn't hoarding it and selling it for triple the price when there was a famine. Uh, it took the whole population to be involved. Now, there's a lot that's still an unfinished process. The status of women was less than zero. I mean, really, women had no standing within the family, no, no ability to even participate in any level in society. So that change has been huge. And it meant that every, in every family, in every village, there had to be a massive re-education plan. 
which is still continuing, quite honestly. The participation of women in society is incredible in China, and yet it's still not equal. And that is something that China very much admits to. They don't have a fully equal society. They are building toward socialism. They are still grappling with the basic problems of development. And as they say, a moderately prosperous life for everyone, which is not yet guaranteed. They've ended poverty. They've ended absolute poverty. But the difference even between the city and the countryside is something that they're still actively engaging in. So they have a pretty honest evaluation. There's enormous applause, support of millions. And yet they also constantly discuss how far they have to go, how many unfinished problems there are. So that's always what I find incredible. This, this mobilization of the, of the population, even campaigns, early campaigns, away with all pests, to get the population involved in sanitation, in sewage, in, in just basic things that changed the mortality rate dramatically overnight, immunization programs for the whole population. That's how today they're combating covid But it's because they've done it again and again in a massive way that everyone understands the importance of total participation. So uh, I do want to say I, I just I had this opportunity two years ago with the 70th anniversary of the founding of, of China to visit China just for a couple of weeks. And the cities were stunning because they were both so modern so incredibly clean and well-organized and, and beautiful. Like I'm, you know, you're, you're sort of used to urban grit here and so many levels and homelessness and desperation of just too many people who live on the streets or have no backup, have no aid, have no connection to social services. You'd see the stunning difference in China of modern transit, which is quiet, it's electrified. But they say at every point that it's still a continuing process, that there are big environmental problems to solve, but they are planting millions, billions probably of trees. Every, every patch that was um, dirt or industrial areas before they're involved in all kinds of tree planting now because they say, well, this is important for the environment, for global warming, to educate the next generation. So there's a, a lot of what was done in the past and learning from it that this is how they're going to educate the next generation with involvement of the whole population. That's, that's essential. And also with saying we're this far along, but we are not yet at socialism. We are building toward it that's huge and it's going to take a disciplined party and at the same time we are up against world imperialism especially u.s imperialism which is is forcing china to put more money into defense because they're up against the biggest death machine on the on the planet so they have to take that pretty seriously also anyway you know we could go on all day because it is an unfinished process and yet one where you can be extremely optimistic. And Sarah, you, you mentioned the threat of U.S. imperialism, and indeed the United States sees People's China as it, the biggest threat to its existence. Um, and I want to spend the last part of our program talking about that. But just to summarize some of the things that we have talked about 
poverty reduction. We're talking hundreds of millions of people in the most recent achievement, but it was an immediate start as soon as the revolution took place, throwing out the landlords, changing the concept of land ownership, changing the, the method of social relations, literacy campaigns like Josh and Makasi talked about, the liberation of women, mass immunizations, infrastructure, digging irrigation and, and electrifying the, the entire country, ending famines and plagues, industrialization, defending Korea against U.S. imperialism. And all of this took place in the first 30 years of the revolution. I also want to let comrades know that we hear you out there. We have a great viewership right here on Zoom, but we're also, it's bumping on Facebook and YouTube as well. We have comrades from Poland. We have comrades from Russia. We have so many people shouting us out in the in the chat right now. Paul says that they know from personal experience, Sarah, that what you're saying is true. Jules says that we have some great inspiring observations. And Abdul says, comrades, no nation in the history of mankind has experienced the high rate of economic growth that China has enjoyed. And I would add that steady growth without depressions, without this constant capitalist boom and bust cycle. We also have some questions that have come up, and I think that it would be good to address some of these questions now, particularly Comrade Brian asked about the Belt and Road Initiative. Can one of the comrades explain for people who aren't familiar with Belt and Road what that is and, and what that means? This Please. is such a huge infrastructure program. It's about, I forget the actual proportion, but like 20 times the size of the Marshall Program at the end of World War II. Just a humongous trillion dollar, multi-trillion dollar development program that China had, is exchanging with many countries to rebuild or build a new infrastructure, rail lines, shipping lines, airports, but other things that are infrastructure also. And that does mean irrigation. It means doing away with famine in many other countries. It means big educational programs. And it's also China finding a way that they're not totally dependent more than 80% of their trade moved through the very narrow Straits of Malacca out of the South China Sea, which the U.S. with one aircraft carrier could shut down. How do they find a way around that in trade and exchange with the world? So part of the Belt and Road is also a defensive program against just a U.S. shutdown, which is threatened again and again when you have U.S. aircraft carriers, destroyers in the South China Sea regularly. It's an everyday threat. And it has a lot to do even with what's going on in Xinjiang and how angry the U.S. is, because that's a major hub of the Belt and Road to Pakistan, to India, to Central Asia, through to Europe. Very important. But it isn't only countries geographically connected. Belt and Road is the only real infrastructure program that has ever been proposed for Africa. In the past, colonialism developed only what they needed of cash crops, raw material that could be immediately extracted, no development whatsoever. And China is changing that. And the U.S. response, because they have nothing of equal to this, they're not even proposing. You know, U.S. foreign aid at this point is military aid. We will sell you weapons. We'll build military bases. We'll send troops but there's no development money. But they have just allocated a huge multi-million dollar budget in public relations. 
And that means hiring endless amounts of journalists, setting up NGOs and, and USAID funding that are aimed at just attacking China with every kind of story and every form of media. It's become a big industry. So this is what U.S. will offer. Lots of anti-China propaganda, lots of it, and lots of military and weapons sales, but they are not offering development. And it is what China is offering. And it won't be perfect. I mean, they're dealing with and signing contracts with countries that themselves haven't resolved the class, internal class relations. But it is changing and vastly expanding literally the size of the working class on a global scale. That's important. And it's very important now, even in Europe, you know, whether it's seaports being rebuilt in Italy or in Greece, who have suffered as part of joining the European Union. Uh, They're actually getting a better deal from China than they got from Germany or France, where instead their pensions were just looted to pay off weapons deals. The, The Greek economy literally went up in flames because they couldn't pay the interest on weapons that they had purchased from the U.S. over years. So China is offering development. That makes a big difference. And here in the U.S., we only see the negative stories, but the Belt and Road is quite important, sea and air, land, in terms of internal development. China can also exchange their products. And it is a lifeline to the countries under sanctions. There are 39 countries in the world now under U.S. sanctions. They're not allowed to trade with anyone, but China is willing to trade with them. And that is an important lifeline. So thanks, Comrade Brian, for that that question. You know, the the history of the 21st century, when it will be told, at the beginning will will include Belt and Road. You know, we're already starting to get into this subject of, of why U.S. imperialism is so threatened by China. And I think Sarah's primer on the Belt and Road Initiative is a really good indicator of why that is. But there was one other really good question came through that I want to ask Josh, because I know you've you've dealt with this. From Judy in the Bay Area, we have a question about criticism of China for pollution. And what steps has China done to really become a leader in pollution reduction? Could you speak briefly on that? Yeah, sure. Sure. And I I think before we even get into that of what steps they've done, it's good to reframe the question and look at what is per capita carbon emissions. China is actually pretty low. A lot of European countries, certainly the U.S., um, Australia, which is heavily dependent on coal, Canada as well, they all have higher per capita carbon emissions. China also is, you know, the world's manufacturer. So a lot of the pollution in China is from manufacturing products, commodities, that are consumed in other countries. So it's it's basically like offshoring pollution. You know, it's still the fault of like these rich industrialized countries because they're the ones that are consuming these products. But China is, is taking a lot of steps to mitigate that. And I mentioned by 2060, China plans to be, the entire country plans to be carbon neutral. They de- Xi Jinping declared a war on pollution in 2014 but steps go back much farther than that, of course. Beijing began cleaning up its air and, you know, better monitoring of the air quality in the 1990s. And since 2014, though, when the war on pollution was declared, there have been rapid 
results, huge results that haven't been replicated anywhere in the world. I mean, they're literally unprecedented because nowhere else in the world has achieved such rapid reductions in air pollution of not just carbon dioxide, but of heavy metal pollution, of sulfur dioxide, of ozone, things like that have gone way down in China. And it's because of the Communist Party of China. If we want to really pin it down to something, it's because of that leadership and because the party can use the vast resources of society to tackle a problem like that. Whereas in capitalist countries, you have all of these groups who organize against it. You know, in the U.S., we have oil companies that spend a bunch of money opposing things to mitigate climate change, to even acknowledge climate change is real. In China, there's really no organized opposition to climate science. There's no politicians in China or people on the news or the radio who are all the time talking about how climate change is fake or it's not that bad or it's even a good thing because it's going to make Siberia, you know, be able to grow pineapples or whatever. So due to China's nature and due to the leadership of the Communist Party of China, it's been able to achieve that. Its reforestation efforts are massive. It planted total forested areas the size of Ireland. Its de-desertification, combating desertification is massive. It's recovered, you know, millions and millions of acres of land from the desert. In Tibet, again, going back to Tibet, because I think it's a useful example, Everyone in Tibet, the rural areas and the urban areas have access to clean water and electricity now. And a lot of that electricity is coming from hydropower and from renewable resources. So I think through China's system, this very nature of it, it's able to take on these big challenges like climate change and pollution. Whereas in the U.S., which has a much more fractured system, it's just due to the very nature, the very DNA of the system, it's unable to take on these big challenges. Look at high-speed rail in California. That thing has dragged on for years, and it's gone way over budget. And a big problem is it has to go through all the land of these like rich vineyards and ranchers who own thousands and thousands of acres, and they're very wealthy and are opposing it and don't want it or basically ransoming the state and saying, I'll give you the easement, but you have to give me this exorbitant amount of compensation. So it's run into problems. But in China, you don't have that issue. So I think... A lot of other countries in the global south, developing countries, can learn a lot from China and how they were able to do, combat pollution and improve their air quality. So China is not only offers solutions for its own cities, but for the world as well to look to to combat climate change. Thanks, Josh. I'm glad. And sorry, that was uh, that was Betsy in Philadelphia's question. Thank you for uh, for addressing that. Comrades, before we get to the last part of our program tonight, I just want to make a couple brief announcements a lot of the information that you're you're learning here tonight and that we're talking about, you can also find in Workers' World newspaper. Workers' World has been in continuous circulation since 1959. We are a daily news service online. If you go to workers.org and enter your email address, you can sign up for new articles from a revolutionary socialist perspective in your inbox every day. And we have a color print edition that comes out every month that will be delivered to your door every day. Every issue, we cover international news as well as news within the U.S. and the colonies of the U.S. and semi-colonies of the U.S. We also exchange articles with our allies in the movement, um, with independent people's media and socialist publications around the world. So it's, it's really an invaluable revolutionary media source. And 
you know, I'm co-editor along with Miranda Chrisman of Tear Down the Walls, which is specifically about the struggle for abolition of the prison industrial complex. From our inside report on the Attica uprising in 1971 to our weekly coverage today, we consider this one of the most important working class struggles happening today. And I also want to recommend that people check out a book that we helped to produce called Capitalism on a Ventilator, The Impact of COVID-19 in China and the U.S. And this was what Judy in the Bay Area was asking about, specifically about China's COVID response. And while we don't necessarily have time to go into the details of that today, we might discuss it in our next section. This book is an anthology that Sarah Flounders co-edited along with Lee Siu Hin, and it talks about the U.S. COVID response and the response to deal with the pandemic from China, from Vietnam, from Cuba. And it really shows why capitalism is in decline and why socialism is the future. So I, I highly recommend you check out that book. It has articles from Sarah, from our Portland comrades, from Mumia Abu-Jamal, from comrade Vijay Prashad, from Kevin Zeese and Margaret Flowers. I, I can't recommend that book enough. Okay, so comrades, before we have to end for today, I want to ask you, what we've been sort of dancing around all night. Why is U.S. imperialism so threatened by China? And maybe even more importantly, why do we support China against the threats of U.S. imperialism? Sarah, do you want to kick us off here? They certainly are threatened. They're threatened, and this was true from the Obama administration and earlier, but it was really crystallized in what was called the pivot to Asia. She says China is the number one, the greatest threat to the U.S. empire, to the U.S. standing, to U.S. future domination of the world. And they were pretty explicit about it. It certainly continued through the Trump administration and has reached a whole new level with this new administration. So why is the U.S. threatened by China? Not because of what China does but because this is a system that is based on cooperation, on social planning, on that the corporations, while they do have, there are capitalists in China, there are billionaires in China, but they are under the control of a workers' party and the state. And so if they can bring in investment money, good, but they don't decide the society And in the U.S., this competitiveness between these giant dinosaurs, these titans, who are willing to starve the world in order to control it. Now, let's let's look at COVID, if you want to see just how threatened the U.S. is and why they're willing to move aircraft carriers and missile batteries and, and try to round up every ally that they can get or pay off. They're very threatened by how China handled COVID. And because the only solution for the problems facing the world today is cooperation and competition, competition for profit can't deal with climate, can't deal with a pandemic, can't deal with any of the problems that are facing the whole human race. Because if it's just about how to maximize profit for the next quarter, any kind of real planning is not possible. Now, China's ability to plan for the whole country and plan for larger areas, you can see the immediate superiority. In COVID, it was absolutely clear. One of the 
probably lowest per capita rates is China. And this is where this unknown and new virus emanated from. And here in the U.S., still the highest in the world of deaths, more than 600,000, of infections, more than 33 million. And after all this, and we were told that there would be far more than 75% yet under the Biden administration, it's not, we're not yet at 70% and quite a ways from it. So the vaccination, how to sell a, a vaccine for maximum profit. Okay, that works in the U.S. For the rest of the world, and the U.S. is only 4% of global population. What does the rest of the world do? China is providing billions, literally billions of vaccines around the world. And all that the U.S. can do is lots of propaganda stories saying, oh, those, those vaccines aren't as good because you can still uh, be infected with COVID. Now, this is true for the U.S. vaccines, too. The question is, will you die of it? Is your immune system strengthened? And the Chinese vaccines are very, very effective in that, but they're also easy to transport, easy to use. And so it's finding solutions that fit the world today and then making them accessible. Now, it's a very dangerous concept. The World Health Organization wants to meet to plan how they would handle the next pandemic. But immediately the question comes up, will the vaccines be free and accessible to the world? Or are they sold for maximum profit? And so you have Big Pharma wanting to sabotage any meeting of the World Health Organization that would take up these questions. Instead, there's all kinds of, did this virus come from a, a lab leak? And let's follow 10 other discredited theories to stop any cooperative approach. So the world today is really a question of, is there cooperation and a system that utilizes, that is dependent on cooperation, which socialist planning is dependent on social cooperation and solidarity, or is it the chaos of competition, of the, sur the survival of the fittest? And it's a big it's a big question, but that is what's in front of us, and it is so much part of why we celebrate a party strong enough to survive imperialist threat and determined to continue resisting and fighting and finding a better solution for their own population, helping the world raise a much higher level, whether it's in vaccines or infrastructure, or we're going to go the way of more weapons and a greater and greater concentration of, of super rich. Thanks, Sarah. Makasi. Yeah, I just wanted to add, you know, talking about why the U.S. is afraid of China, we can also go back to the conversation about Belt and Road and trade, right? The U.S. has a concept called free trade, which is neither free nor trade, right? It's not trade. It's resource extraction. It's, it's, it's stealing wealth from the global south. And it's not free because the U.S. has to control it. If you decide to say, well, I'm going to, you know, you could be Venezuela. You could say, I want to nationalize my oil and dictate the terms that I sell it onto this free market. The U.S. says, well, we can give a suitcase full of money to your political rivals and, and launch a coup d'etat. So the, the U.S. doesn't believe in free trade. They believe in, in controlled resource extraction. And when China creates a competing system that actually is beneficial for their partners and builds up infrastructure, that means that the United States is now limited 
in where they can go. People actually have a choice of who they can get loans from. And maybe this loan doesn't mean that if you can't pay it back, you have to get rid of your pensions. You have to get rid of your health care. You have to get rid of your education and, and infuriate and impoverish your people. They've got a better option. And the reason why that's a real problem with the U.S. is because for every capitalist, their worst enemy is another capitalist. They're constantly competing with each other. And if you can't stay ahead, you're going to go out of business. You're going to be ruined, right? And so that means you've got to extract all the resources in North America. And then once you've done that, you've got to do it in South America. And once you've done that, you've got to do it in Africa. And eventually you need to get to China. You need to get to East Asia. And the fact that China can block that or can give the rest of the world alternatives, it's a death sentence for U.S. capitalism. Very well said, Mikasi. Josh, do you want to give us uh, any closing thoughts on on U.S. imperialism in China? Yeah, I think, you know, it's threatened by China in two ways. One, China wants to develop a world of multilateralism, of mutually beneficial relationships. And that's really mutually exclusive with the U.S. system of hegemony of global domination. So it fears that system of a truly multilateral world coming into order. And then I think it also fears China because it's able to do things that the U.S. isn't because of that competition between the capitalists and all of the inherent contradictions in U.S. capitalism. Like when you look at China's telecommunications, it's 4G and it's 5G. It has the most 4G base stations in the world. It's 5G is really advanced. And it was able to do that because all of the telecoms in China are state-owned And the government mandated that they not charge higher in rural, like mountainous areas, because it's a lot cheaper to serve an urban area that's dense. You know, you put up one cell phone tower and within a mile radius, there's thousands of people living in an urban area. So that's cheaper. Whereas in a rural area, you put up a tower and within a mile is maybe only a few dozen people. But the government mandated at state-owned telecoms not to charge any difference between the rural and the urban areas. So it has like over 99% broadband coverage in the rural mountain areas, whereas in the U.S. still a lot of rural areas don't have very good coverage. I saw a a study from PC Magazine that looked at 5G speeds in U.S. cities and found in like 33 out of 34 cities that they looked at, the AT&T's 5G was actually slower than 4G. And there's a lot of problems that like lead into that and create that. So I think that that scares the U.S., that China is able to do these big technological, these big daring scientific projects that the U.S. isn't able. And if you look at like the Arecibo Observatory in Puerto Rico, which recently collapsed due to the neglect of the U.S. not funding it, China built its own large radio telescope, the FAST, the 500-meter aperture space telescope. And that's something that the U.S. wasn't able to do. And also as part of that project, they actually spent more money on poverty reduction as part of that project than the actual cost of the station itself, of the dish itself. They moved people out of the area and they spent all kinds of money to help the areas around them. And again, that's not really something you see the U.S. doing, you know, when it develops these, what little infrastructure projects it does have, it's, it's not able to do that. Look at the Texas power grid and its failures and its problems. That's something that you don't see in China because it has public ownership of the grid and it has a national grid system. Texas is disconnected from the rest of the U S grid, but China has a smart grid. It has a coordinated society wide approach to that. And so that makes it more successful. And it's something the U S will never have with its current system. Thanks, Josh. 
I am so excited that the, the chat has been going off this entire time. Shout out to comrade Eugene in Caracas, Venezuela, who said, you nailed it, Sarah. Cooperation threatens capitalism. And also gave a shout out to Makasi um, that free trade, neither free nor trade, makes it very clear. And also shout out to Sudarshan, who said, capitalism is the root cause of all evils. Socialism is the solution for humanity. And I think that's that's a really clear point from a comrade in the chat. This is why we support China against U.S. imperialism. You know, we don't have to agree with everything China's ever done and every decision that was made by the, the Communist Party of China. But the U.S. empire wants to destroy this socialist project that we've been talking about all night. And I, I have to address something that Monica brought up in the Q&A, um, Comrade Monica in New York, that President Biden recently criticized forced labor practices in China. And this is coming from one of the architects of mass incarceration in the United States and the incredible, obscene hypocrisy to criticize, you know, we, we know that there's great fabrications and great exaggerations about, you know, what happens in, in China. But even so, to, for the U.S. to make that kind of criticism is so obscene to me. The, the, someone like President Biden, who is one of the architects of this genocidal war, these genocidal wars that have killed over a million Muslims across the world to then claim that they care about the human rights of Muslims in China. It is obscene hypocrisy. And so we, we have to understand that when the United States criticizes Chinese policy, it is never in good faith. It is never honest. And it is all in the service of trying to destroy the socialist project that we've been talking about tonight. Comrades, we, we've already been speaking for over an hour and you know I have the the horrible job of having to bring us to a close. But I do want to say that, you know, while our conversation tonight is coming to an end, one of the great things about being able to call Makasi and Sarah and Josh, my comrades, is that we get to have these conversations all the time, which is one of the reasons that I would suggest that if you like what you heard today, you should join Workers World Party so that you can keep having these conversations with, with all of us. If you go to workers.org slash join, one of our organizers will be in touch. So, comrades, it has been such a wonderful discussion tonight. I, I hate to have to bring it to an end, but thank you so much for, for being with us. Go to workers.org to, to read more about what we're discussing and build a workers' world. That's what we're here to do, and that's what the Communist Party of China has been so successful at. Thanks, comrades. <laughs>